Hey there, welcome back into the show. This is West of Everest. Lee Benson here, along with Grant Benson, and it's the middle of January. It's cold, not just in Minnesota where Grant is, but also in Oklahoma. College football season is over, and the season ended with Michigan winning the national championship, so it truly is a bleak time for this podcast host. But alas, we shall carry on through what is the incredibly long college football offseason. Now, Saturday, Oklahoma officially announced the hiring of Zach Alley as co-defensive coordinator and linebackers coach. Coaching titles, I think, are kind of getting out of hand right now in college football. Oklahoma now has three co-defensive coordinators, Alley, Todd Bates, and Jay Valai. So just a little note, but uh, we talked about Zach Alley on our last show. So if you want our thoughts on him, check out episode 304 of the podcast. Don't really expect us to have anything new or groundbreaking this episode, but I suppose we shall see. Now, in the last week, the Sooners picked up a couple of new players in the transfer portal, a tight end and a quarterback. We'll have thoughts on both of those guys coming up, as well as other national college football thoughts later in the show. And we'll read your comments and questions from the West of Evers Facebook page. Some comments and questions on the Oklahoma offensive line looking ahead to 2024. So we'll read those questions and comments and talk about that as well. So with that, we'll say hello to Grant for the first time. Grant, what's going on? Nothing much. Just trying to stay warm here in Minnesota, kind of like how everyone else in the Midwest is this weekend. But uh, also a perfect time to kind of stay inside and be cozy and eat a bunch of comfort food and everything. So it's it's not all bad. I'm sure it's uh, the infrastructure and everything there in Oklahoma, probably a little bit more strained and stuff. But uh, kind of business as usual here in Minneapolis. But man, it's cold. It's so, so cold. But uh, it's uh, kind of the perfect metaphor, right, for uh, we are entering the long, dark college football offseason, which, of course, as you get older, as we talked about on the show, nowhere near as long or as dark because we know that it'll be here. It's going to be August again here before we know it. Yeah, that's been a theme on this podcast probably for the last, I don't know, three or four years maybe. It certainly wasn't when we started the show. I remember how long the offseason felt between – the first year we did this show, which was the 2017 season, and then getting to the 2018 season, Kyler Murray's year starting, I feel like that offseason took forever. And now we look back at the 2018 season opener against FAU, that seems like ages ago. But I remember when we got to that game, thinking like, oh, finally, we're here. I'd be curious to know how many of our listeners are, I don't know, in their in their 30s, mid-30s, 40s, 50s, I don't know how many. I have no idea the age of our listeners. I don't know. How many people that are kind of around our age or older have the same thoughts as us that the, se- the offseason actually does go by a lot faster than it did seem to go by whenever you're in high school, college, even out of college when you're still in your 20s? For whatever reason, I don't know why it is, but yeah, it, as much as the offseason in college football, the, the length of it is super long, but for whatever reason, it feels shorter now. Yeah, and you know, I mean, that's just the, we don't need to get into uh to Einstein's theory of relativity here. That would be a waste of time here on this podcast. But all of that is just to say that it's not going to be as long as we think, and we'll be playing OU football again here before we know it. And also, just the calendar of college football now, there's just a lot more stuff going on. We're going to have spring football starting here in like a couple of months, basically. And then from there, there's going to be another, there's going to be another uh, portal entry window after spring football, which I'm sure there's going to be a lot of activity for OU, I would assume, with that. And so there's really just not a whole 
it's you're not at a loss of things to talk about anymore because the college football calendar has just been kind of extended and there's more stuff going on. So with that being said, it's, you know, what's, what does OU have to look forward to here coming? I know there's, there's been a lot of stuff. We talked about Zach Alley last week and that's been made official here. I think that was made official on Saturday, right? As a kind of like a Saturday news dump. Yeah. We're recording on Sunday morning. It was yesterday. So Saturday, the 13th is uh, when it was made official. And it was funny. I was actually, doing some prep for the podcast yesterday kind of morning afternoon whenever it was and i went to the ou website to do some to look at the roster and kind of look at some of the players and (laughs) the main page on ou's website when i went there was zach alley official and i was like oh and so i went on the twitter real quick and i was like okay well i guess that's new and nobody was talking about it so i thought oh well they must just be updating the website and getting ready to announce this so of course, I thought, oh, maybe I'm the first person that saw that this was official. <laughs> That's kind of just weird luck. But uh, yeah, so Saturday afternoon, it's official. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit here coming up because I do. There was a couple quotes and stuff and uh, might as well just kind of talk a little bit more about it. But real quick, I know we, we mentioned at the end of our last show that we were going to go to Lawrence to watch the basketball team or at least try to. Yeah, we canceled that because of the weather. Mainly, it was an issue with you grant because you would have had to travel south to you know through iowa which is i guess i haven't double checked to see if it actually if is you bad, followed it but. it was it's been worse than they predicted in iowa okay. so pretty much the entire so yeah, state of iowa stupid. is is was shut down so there was it was on thursday where we basically called it and said it wasn't going to happen because kind of about noon on Thursday, I was looking at all the weather reports and it dawned on me that if I actually wanted to get to Lawrence safely, I was probably going to have to leave town in a a couple of hours from there to beat all of the, uh, about like 24 hours earlier than I had anticipated. So um, glad we didn't. It's been blizzarding in Iowa all weekend. Um, I know the Highway 35 there has been shut down in certain places, so it would have been a question whether or not I would have even been able to get through there. So... Um, that sucks, but also it's, you know, we didn't miss much of a game. So, um, I, I guess in, in, in that way, it was kind of a blessing. Yeah. I just, I wanted to acknowledge that at the top of the show in case anybody was thinking, Oh, did you guys go to the game? Or are you going to talk about that? Uh, so no, we didn't go to the game and you're right. Uh, maybe at the end of the show, we'll, we'll talk more about basketball if we have more time, but just wanted to throw that out there right now. Uh, yep. I'm with you. Happy that, uh, you know, in hindsight, it probably would not have been a very fun trip. <laughs> the way the game played out and with the weather and everything. So back to Zach Alley. And I'll, I will say, so now it's official. Oklahoma has their new guy, uh, new co-DC, technically. Uh, so I'll add that when you read his quotes from the official release, it's just a confirmation of what we talked about a little bit before and what other people have already talked about, that this is getting a guy that's as close as you'll get to a Brent Venables clone. And you look at the, the release, the official release, and Alley says – that everything he does defensively is based on what Brent Venables did at Clemson. That uh, that style of defense has been the foundation for how Alley has built his defenses. So my takeaway is just the best case scenario is that you've got the real Brent Venables in-house <laughs> along with a younger 2024 version of Brent Venables and along with the rest of that defensive coaching staff at Oklahoma – they all just kind of make magic together as Oklahoma goes to the SEC. And we just see what happens from there. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and I'll echo what I said last week. I, I just think 
this is a sign, I hope, of good things to come. And I think just in terms of being aware of what your program needs, I think this is a good step in, you know, in the right direction. Because Ted Roof, I mean, I think over these last two years, Brent Venables internally can justify that as, hey, I'm new. This is somebody that has a lot of experience in college football, and I trust him to implement sort of like the 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 main tenets of my defense. But I, I anything past that, it, I think it was hard to justify keeping him on staff. Ted Roof, he seems like a great dude that everybody likes, but when you start talking about Ted Roof with that, there's always a and then or an, an a but. And with Ted Roof, it's his history as a college football coach is just not that impressive. He has not been in charge of a lot of good defenses. And, and frankly, not, he'd never been in charge of a good defense in his career. So it was just with the idea of can you maximize your success? Are you doing, are you doing the absolute best you can with the staff that you have? And Ted Roof being on staff was always a giant question mark of, I think it's fair to question whether or not this guy is the best that Oklahoma can possibly do. And so I talked about, like, I would have loved Jim Leonard or something like that, a guy who still doesn't have a big job, uh, who, is, who is still just an analyst at Illinois right now. But also, Oklahoma has a history. Their program's history is of identifying young, talented guys and essentially getting them before they become a hot new thing. And so I think you can justify the Zach Alley hire in that way. And I think Brent Venables has earned the right to pick out a young guy that he thinks is going to be a defensive mastermind because he's been around and he gets it. So other than that, like you're, I'm not going to break down Jacksonville state defensive highlights. I mean, I'm not, I'm not qualified to do that. I'm not going to do that, but we're going to trust that Brent Venables knows something about defense. And I just like the idea of a younger guy, a more fiery guy who can come in and recruit across the board it feels just like a major, major upgrade from Ted Roof and that their staff is going to be better for it. And later in the show, we'll read a couple of Facebook comments. Uh, right now, though, as we're talking about Zach Alley, there's, there's one comment that fits into this conversation. I'll just read it now from Shane. Shane says that the firing of Ted Roof was significant because it demonstrated that Venables recognized a change needed to be made on the defense and that he wasn't afraid to do what needed to be done unlike Bob Stoops, who was loyal to a fault. So, and that, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it's, I talked about it in the last show. It's, it's an example of Venables kind of telling us that he knows what time it is. He knows they're going to the SEC. Ted Roof, not good enough. We got to do something else. And that's the thing is Zach Alley may end up not being great, but sorry for old, the old roofer. Like really kind of anybody was going to probably be an upgrade just on paper based off of his history and you went over his history I went over his history it's just he had I mean in his entire entire career as a DC I know you said he's never had a good defense he's had I mean he had like three or four good defenses but he never had in a defense that Oklahoma needs to you know like a, a high level elite like top 20 you know good he never had any of those yeah ever. like so for instance so. the best the best OU defense of the last 15 years was the 2009 defense Ted Roof has never had a defense anywhere close to as good as that one was. No. And the one kind of positive you could say, other than the fact that everyone liked him, and we brought it up too, is like he had a he's got a ring. I mean, he he won a national title with Auburn. And so, I mean, that there's some value to that. Obviously, Venables has rings too. But, you know, that only takes you so far. And I mean, that was a decade ago, and it's just, yep, time to move on. 
All right, so more news and notes of the week. Real quick, this is one of the players that obviously we talked about during the offseason, or I guess during the, the break between the regular season and the bowl game about, hey, will they, won't they? We did get some clarity on another player, Trace Ford. So Trace Ford is going to return in 2024. That was first reported by the OU Daily. And so just wanted to throw that out there. That's some news that came out since our last show. And I talked about last episode, I believe it was last episode, yeah, about how the last five seasons, defensive ends and Brent Venables' defense has not had as much success getting to the quarterback. Well, as we know, Trace Ford's in that position group, so I'm going to continue to be skeptical about the havoc numbers that that group is producing. But at the same time, happy to see Trace coming back. We all wanted that to happen. That just provides even more depth, more veteran experience, which, as we all know, is going to be even more important going into the SEC. Yeah, and I, and I you know, it, it adds to the storyline going into next season about just how experienced their defense is going to be, which, I mean, we, we just saw Michigan win a national championship because they had a bunch of fifth and sixth year guys on their defense. That, that's, and, and I'm not saying, like, I'm not, I'm not comparing OU's defense to Michigan's. They're not even close to that good, not even remotely close to that good. But one of the reasons why Michigan was able to put it all together this year is because they had a bunch of dudes, essentially who should be in their second year of NFL camp coming up, who are instead playing college football. And, and I don't know if I would consider like Trace Ford one of those guys who is just who is going to be like a magic bullet. But Trace Ford, well, he was fine this year. In spot duty, there were times where he looked okay. And it's just it's, it's never a bad thing to have a guy who's going to be in his sixth year of college football, who has played a lot of teams, played in a lot of situations, and... Maybe other people sort of emerge this upcoming season that allows Trace Ford to maybe only play a handful of snaps a game, and maybe he can just be that much more effective in those snaps. So always a good thing. A lot of just a lot of experience coming back on the defense, and uh, that's just nice to see. And it's also good to see that Ford was able to make it through an entire season healthy. He didn't get hurt. And the previous two seasons, he was banged up and was injured. So and I mean, a lot of it had to do probably with his role. He didn't he wasn't asked to play 40, 50, 60 snaps a game. And so it's just nice. I'm sure maybe mentally for him, even though I'm sure he would have loved to play a lot more, play a lot more snaps. Duh. At least he got through a season unscathed and healthy for the first time since I think the 2020 season. I think he, he was injured in 21. He was injured in 22. So that's just that's a positive. He's, he's not coming off any injury. He's coming back, hopefully with the confidence that. All right. I got one more year. It's going to be fun playing in the SEC, a lot of change, and maybe I can up my draft stock or, you know, my NFL stock. And so just another and, note. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here just trying to think of all of the guys on the defense who are going to be in their fourth, fifth, or sixth year of college football. On defensive line, you got Trace Ford, Ethan Downs, DeJon Terry, and Jacob Lacey, all of those guys in their fourth, fifth, or sixth year. Danny Stutzman, who's going to be in his fourth year, Billy Bowman in his fourth year. Woody Washington in his sixth year. There's a, lot, there's a lot of experience there. A lot of experience, and I think that's invaluable. So the only thing that we can hope is that a lot of, all of those guys are able to take a step into the offseason, or a step up in the offseason, and things are better next year. But as we said numerous times, it's those guys in the secondary that really need to lend their experience because, man, the past defense is bad, and that's the biggest question mark going into next year. Indeed. All right, so Trace Ford coming back couple other guys that were not on Oklahoma's roster are coming in and we'll start in the tight end room and Jake Roberts is now transferring to Oklahoma he played at North Texas for a few years uh, under Seth Luttrell 
before going to Baylor last year after Latrell left North Texas. So, uh, man, he's going to be in his, I think, fifth year of college. I think he played at North Texas for three seasons and Baylor for one. So he's, he's a veteran player and didn't do a whole lot last year at Baylor. He had 23 catches, 231 yards, and a touchdown. But uh, you hear that production, and it's more than what Austin Stogner did. <laughs> At Oklahoma so uh, and Stogner as we know played like every single snap and uh, only caught 17 passes this past year so what I did Grant is I went back and I was curious I went back and looked at his numbers at North Texas really 2022 was when he kind of broke out and that was Seth Luttrell's last season there at North Texas and my immediate thought when I was watching some of his film is that this guy is much more athletic than Austin Stogner uh, he looks to have pretty good straight line speed for a guy that's 6'5", 250. And he was a player who was utilized quite a bit in 2022 at North Texas. He had the third most catches on the team. He had 28, added three touchdowns. Uh, so another thing that, that kind of got me realizing is that, okay, the tight end does look to be a solid part of Seth Luttrell's offense. So I did see there are some plays that were designed only for Roberts like particularly a couple of tight end throwback passes, which one resulted in an easy wide open touchdown against UTSA. Uh, another interesting wrinkle that I saw them use Roberts in the bowl game. They played Boise State. They lined him up in the backfield as an up back and they faked a quarterback draw up the middle and then did a little jump pass as Roberts released upfield. And that was a nice little pop pass for a 17 yard touchdown in the red zone. So Roberts was a guy that Latrell obviously like utilizing trusted him big target and put him in the offense so my thought is that if Latrell is interested in utilizing the tight end with Jake Roberts like he did at uh, SMU at North Texas what is he going to do with Devon Mitchell the incoming freshman who's a lot more athletic freaky oh and by the way the guy we talked about earlier in you know a few months ago or a few months a few weeks ago Bauer Sharp who's coming in as well uh you know you got Sharp Roberts you got Devon Mitchell coming in and you look at that tight end room grant right now my god like massively upgraded at that position group here going into 2024 yeah I know I think you can definitely talk yourself into that being a much better group this year because it was real I mean it was just Stogner and no one else basically you know uh, Blake Smith well, is Blake already, Smith, already right Blake already Smith was the guy out. that Josh Fanuel is is, is yeah. back as well he'll be there and you know he, he started to get a little bit more run later in the year He's a guy who intrigues me as a receiving option just because he's a former basketball player and there is just precedent for that working out in a lot of instances. And then Caden Helms is also still there who, of course, you know, I, you can't really count on him. He hasn't been healthy at all. But he's one of those guys, you know, I he's a guy who I think coaches have kind of talked about him in the offseason too. He's a guy, I guess, who has done a really good job in the weight room even though he hasn't, he hasn't been healthy in the lower body. It's, I think it's, it's been one of his knees or something like that. But he does he he does a podcast with with someone I think with Nick Anderson as well, and you know I sometimes see clips of that. Caden Helms in the upper body is pretty big, like he's gotten really big. You can tell. And so, man, if he could just stay healthy, he was a guy in that recruiting class I really liked on tape as a receiving threat. And so, I, and I'm not counting on him at all whatsoever in that regard. But um, it's it's Bauer Sharp who I think is the X factor here, a guy who I think could be a really really buy low high reward person for them and so but yeah Jake Roberts coming in I think it is it's easy to talk yourself into he's at least at the very worst a marginal upgrade over Austin Stogner 
And so, and a guy who is going to be in his fifth year of playing college football. But really, uh, you know, I think you you buried the lead a little bit there too. He's he's a preferred walk on. He's actually not getting a scholarship. And um, a, at least half of the calculus here from the coaching staff is is because of his brother Nate for sure, who is a legit blue chip, like top five tight end in the country and in, in the recruiting class coming up here. And I'm sure this is just going to make it a lot easier for him to pull the trigger. Yeah, and that's another thing too. Yeah, I mean he's built a lot like his brother. You know, six four, two thirty, two forty, and I know Brent Venables has already kind of mentioned. I think he mentioned Washington tight ends before before he even could officially even talk about him after. So, or, yeah, I guess technically he's not he's not part of OU's class, so he can't really talk about him. But I know that's definitely uh, a player they're looking at. So, uh, yeah. So I mean, you hope that this guy comes in can contribute I, I think he can uh, his, uh, he looks like a, a good player I mean he, he's he looks better than Austin Stogner and Austin Stogner was the guy that played all year last year and then you throw in Bauer Sharp Devon you know Caden Helms anything you get from him is just gravy at this point gonna be entering his third year in college and I'm with you I mean he was a guy that I know a lot of people were excited about but he can't stay healthy so that's just uh man it's it's crazy how bad that position group looked coming in to the season in August and it played out that way it did <laughs> I mean that and and it's so just, like it wasn't I, good. I, and I want to and and this was this was one of the biggest red flags for me this season. And, and maybe this is just normie college football guy behind my behind my laptop, not not understanding. But I just I, I I like eleven personnel. I think you know tight ends can can create so many different matchup problems. You can do a lot of really creative things with them. I just I just did not understand Jeff Lebby's insistence of of having being an eleven personnel essentially at all times especially when 11 personnel really hinges on the tight end group, which is objectively your worst position group on the entire roster. And I, I just, that to me screamed one of, like that to me screamed to Jeff Lebby is one of his priorities was not getting them in the right personnel packages. Basically like, um, basically accepting reality and realizing that you're not very good at tight end it always seemed like he just he was throwing on a helmet and just he just wanted to just go headfirst right into it because this is what we do, regardless of if this is the best way or the best the best position to put our players in. And so I, you know, I like what they've done upgrading the room. I keep saying it though, this I mean, the strength of this team is in its wide receivers. And man, they, they just they really needed to emphasize that more. And I, I hope in the offseason when they're kind of scouting themselves and they're looking at it, I, I really hope Seth Luttrell is the type of person who's like, you know, I, we're going we're gonna to put more 10 personnel on the field because we have like six or seven really good receivers. And it just makes it harder on the defense to put all of those guys out there at once. Austin Stogner was not a threat catching the ball. And it played out like that over the course of the year. Teams did not have to think about him. And I, and I think... Once you do that, especially in this era of football, you're playing with with a hand tied behind your back. Yeah, and it's not like he was this great road grade blocker either. I mean, he, he was, I, by my eyes, he, he was, was below average at it, not very good at it. Uh, yeah, I, like whereas, like someone like dumb holding penalties and like remember, remember yeah. how good Carson Meyer was in 2018. Yeah, it's like you know where he kind of he kind of came out of nowhere and he just had a really good season and did all of the dirty work but it's like that's that's kind of your best case scenario I think for something like that that's where that's where you hope like Jake Roberts is 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 kind of like a Carson Meyer clone who is a really good blocker doesn't make mistakes and when he's called on to make plays in the passing game 
he makes them 95% of the time. And Austin Stogner and has more, just was more ability not to that. make a play. An ability ability to make a play, yes. And um I thought I thought for as much as it was unfair to make Austin Stogner that much of a thing in the offense this year. And I guess if you want to look at it from that angle, he he did an okay job. Like it wasn't always disastrous. But he also didn't add anything as well. I was just like, yeah, like, what was the point? What was the point? And uh, yeah, but back to yeah, Roberts. I mean, I, I was kind of disappointed. I was going back and trying to find all of his big plays and stuff from 2022. And you know, he his long pass catch of 2022. He went for 70 yards against Florida International. Well, I I, I couldn't find any video of it. I was curious what it looked like. I, of course, the. Uh, Let's see, North Texas is in what, the American Athletic Conference, I think, or, or Conference USA, or whatever the heck they are. And they, they had, like on YouTube, they had kind of like extended highlights and stuff. And I saw a lot of stuff from there. Some random games were fully on there on YouTube. The very first play of a, the game against FIU was a 70 yard pass to Roberts. And the, the highlight, the package didn't have it in there. It makes me wonder if. If like the broadcast wasn't even ready yet or something, like, it was on so ES, It was like on ESPN Plus or something, and they hadn't switched Probably, over yet yeah. the game like before it went long. Yeah, it's something because I feel like if that video existed, it would have been on the. I mean, I'm sure they have it on their all 22s in house and stuff. But anyway, just a random thing. Like I really wanted to see that play, but there are a couple of plays where he he got out in front and got running, and he's like, okay, this guy can move. He's he's a lot more fluid of a runner than we saw from Stogner and I, it's clearly all Stogner's injury man like Stogner looked good before he was injured in 2020 like he looked like he was pretty athletic for his size decently athletic could move and then he got injured and it just he was never the same there when I mean he was he played a mat like Austin Stogner was a big deal his first two years on campus he played a massive role in them beating Baylor in 2019 on the road in that comeback he had two touchdown catches in that game um, and then it's hard. I mean, him and Theo Weiss were, and Drake Stoops were the main reason why they beat Texas in 2020. Th- those were the three guys. Those were, those were the guys who carried the offense that day. And, and so, yeah, I mean, he was a guy who just, who clearly was dealing with lots of injuries by the time he was in his last year here. So obviously frail and just was not moving as well as he did in the early part of his career. And that's not to say that he moved exceptionally well in the early part of his career, but in the early part of his career, he did kind of seem like your traditional like 1990s tight end who was big and strong and was able to body guys. And that, was, that did not seem to be the case at all in his last two full seasons at OU. All right, so that's the new tight end coming in. Jake Roberts, another player coming to Oklahoma then this past week, and it's in the quarterback room. And so the Sooners ensure that their backup quarterback situation is not going to be a dumpster fire in 2024, pending injury, of course. And that is Casey Thompson coming in. And Thompson, this is going to be his seventh year of college, getting an additional year because he was granted a medical hardship waiver. And he's getting that because he was at FAU this past season and he tore his ACL three games into the year. So that's kind of the bad news, right? Is that He's coming into Oklahoma, and he's currently recovering from a torn ACL, so he's injured. Fortunately, that happened back in September, so he's you know three, four months into his recovery, and you'd think he should be you know good to go by the start of the 2024 season. 
But what that does is, though, you know, it hinders his preparation process for that season. He's not going to be able to play in spring ball, you would imagine. And so for him, it's going to be all mental reps. And, you know, it's one of those things where the guy's a veteran, played a lot of college football, and you could do a lot worse as your backup quarterback than Casey Thompson. Yeah, I, I, I like this move. I objectively, I think it's a good move. Um, sort of one of the questions that the transfer portal era has brought up is how can you ever find an experienced backup quarterback? Because most people want to transfer out and they want to play right away. And that's the thing with young guys. Like we had this conversation this year is if Dylan Gabriel comes back this year, does, does Jackson Arnold stick around for another year? Does he transfer somewhere we can play right away? Probably the latter. And so it, I, I just, I don't think it was realistic to come into this year, Jackson Arnold, the second year on campus, and you have either Michael Hawkins or Brandon Zerberg to, to back him up. That was not a good situation for OU. And so I think it's always a challenge finding someone in the transfer portal who is experienced and is okay being the backup. And obviously that's the case here with Casey Thompson. And hey, he's not even taking up a scholarship. He's going to be a preferred walk-on. And Casey Thompson's not great. He's not great at all. But he is somebody who at times in his career has been able to complete forward passes at a high level. I know the 2021 OU defense was bad. The secondary was an absolute dumpster fire with bad coaches coaching bad players a lot of the time. Anybody who can throw for 450 yards in an OU Texas game in a, in a Power 5 FBS Division One game, that is okay as, as, as your backup. He has shown that he is able to do that against bad defenses. I, you know, I, Davis Bevel wouldn't be able to do that against high school defenses. That's ridiculous. He probably would be able to, but it illustrates my point. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, I was kind of thinking back and I was like, man, it's, it's about time the, the backup quarterback room or the backup quarterback position was, was back to being good at Oklahoma. And I thought, well, it's, I guess it was only bad for one season because uh, obviously with, well, you know, with Baker, his last year, they had Kyler as a backup, never had to play. Uh, I guess with Kyler, they didn't really. I mean, that was what Austin Kendall time, and I mean, I guess he's fine. Uh, no, he was um, he was bad. That that wasn't a good situation. Austin Kendall's bad. I mean, but like you could do worse than Austin Kendall. I mean, he ended up transferring and played at West Virginia, and you know, with Jalen, they had Spencer, but Spencer never played. Obviously, with Rattler in twenty. Who is Mordecai? Who was the backup in twenty twenty? Mordecai. Oh yeah, Mordecai. Mordecai's uh, Mordecai's bad. Uh, he's not a See, good but, player. But but it's not that's not it's not Davis. Be- it's I mean, not sorry, Davis. It's, Bevel it's not bad. Bevel Booty. Like that backup, and then obviously in 21, you had Caleb Williams and the rest is history. 2022 with Dylan, and then th- that quarterback room is an it aside from the starting quarterback had to have been the worst quarterback room in, in all of FBS college football. I, I don't know how, how it could, like if Davis Bevel was the guy that won out of all those other guys, and we saw him play, and he had plenty of opportunity, and he couldn't, he couldn't throw the football he, in a quarterback friendly offense, which is Jeff Levy's offense. Couldn't figure it out. There, and yet, neither could General Booty, and neither could uh, Nick, Evers. Out, the, Nick Evers. Their yeah. number two and number three guys in 2022 are borderline low-level FCS players, period. Insane. And so, I, you know, now you're back to, okay, now you got Jackson Arnold. And obviously, this past year, Jackson Arnold was the backup. Okay, great. That's, that's fine. More than, more than fine. And now you got Arnold and then Casey Thompson. Okay, good. You got a guy that's going into his seventh year. As you said, yeah, you could do a lot worse than that. And, man, it would have been interesting to see what kind of season he would have had this past year at FAU. Granted, if he wouldn't have gotten injured, he wouldn't be available to play. So, um, Because the medical hardship is why he's getting an extra year. So he uh, 
he came in, had a, had a good first game against a bad team, and then the next two games he actually played, he played Ohio, who had like maybe the best uh, G5 defense out there, like one of the best, Ohio, like in the MAC. It was like them and SMU and Jacksonville State, I guess. Uh, but Ohio had a good defense, didn't, didn't play well, and then they played Clemson, and that's and against Clemson he tore his ACL. So you know, who knows if he would have had a good season, but any, I guess it wouldn't have mattered because then OU wouldn't be able to get him. So yeah. Anyways, I it, but you, you know he's work. a seventh year guy who has performed well at times in big games. Like there's you know it's still and you know he wasn't he wasn't particularly great against OU you know playing for Nebraska last season at all, but you know he was still able to complete some forward passes and I like I'll take it I'll take it and his one year as the full time starter at, at Texas he was fine he was not the problem with that team he put up some numbers. Throwing to good receivers, yeah, no, he, and like agreed. that he's, and if he is, if if he's called into duty next season against OU, he's gonna have good receivers to throw to. Yeah, and, and obviously you had good receivers. You hope Seth Luttrell puts together a really good offense. It's a situation where if you got to go long periods of time with him playing, it's it's not going to be good. But that's that's any college team. I mean, if you lose your starting quarterback for a long period of time. No matter who you are, you're probably going to be screwed. When Alabama so. just like randomly benched Jalen Milrow for South Florida this year, and they it almost got him beat because the people behind him were terrible and couldn't do anything. Oh yeah, no, I remember watching that game. That was weird. That was the first sign that man, this Alabama team is just not that good. I mean, relative to Alabama, and then the stupid team makes the playoff, which is just it's all Auburn's fault. As <laughs> I was gonna say, and, I, the, I, and the playoff committee's fault. I still, I still think Alabama making the playoff this year should, should give some OU fans a, a little bit more confidence going into next season. Like that's, oh, like OU objectively across the board is is was better on offense than Alabama this year, except at running back. I agree, and I will say so. You mentioned a couple other quarterbacks. You, know, you talked about Michael Hawkins before, and so I hadn't really looked at him at all yet, and so I was like, okay, well. Let's go check out some Michael Hawkins tape. And so I, you know, watched his three minute or so huddle highlight that's out there and I couldn't really find much else. Yeah, uh, not impressed. Uh, some of the throws looks like he's kind of short arming the ball. Uh, some of the throws looks like he has a pretty good arm, but it's not that consistent. Like the way he throws his base is inconsistent. His footwork needs to improve. He did show a couple instances of good pocket movement and pocket presence, which is always a great, to, great thing to see from a high school player. Uh, and for a guy who's a great runner, I will say this. Another positive, he didn't seem to be a player that immediately looked to eject from the play and like, oh, it's, I, I got to get out of here and run. It looked like he was trying to, for the most part, from what I saw, go through his progressions and, and not just give up on the play and run. So normally, you know, you see a guy that's great athletically, which he is, they just fall back on their legs it seemed like he was a player that trusted the offense and would try to go through the play and throw the ball so I saw that a lot of RPO stuff I saw which my initial thought when I saw that was like oh I see why Jeff Levy liked this guy <laughs> a lot of RPOs in this offense and so I'm we'll see I mean I'm hopefully he can progress and be good but yeah I'm, I'm happy that we're not going into 2024 and this guy is the backup quarterback to Jackson Arnold yeah, he's a he's a project. He he's a project. I um I, I think his best comp from someone in college football right now is is Jalen Milrow. That's his best comp. 
and um, well, we'll I think see. Miller is a lot bigger than him. Yeah, I, I just though, I, right? I don't see Michael Hawkins really being a thing at least his first two years in college. Um, I, the thing that like I, I just his junior tape just did not impress me at all when I watched it, you know, over a year ago, and that was when I was first kind of like, Ugh, I if this is like the guy who is kind of headlining their class, that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, his his senior stuff is a lot better. And uh, his his numbers, his senior year at the highest level of Texas high school football, you can't ignore. His numbers are incredible. Um, but I, I want to say I think he's playing at the second highest. I think they're. He think, I think he's playing five A ball, not six A. Oh, okay. Five A. So well, five A is the highest here in Minnesota. I always get that that confused. I thought Minnesota went up to six A, and since we've left, jeez, I, I don't know, man. I wasn't. I think they did. I wasn't. I was in high school sixteen years ago. I don't know what's going on. Um. <laughs> But the thing that actually got me most concerned about Michael Hawkins is he was at Elite 11, and you could watch some of those cut-ups just compared to the other guys who was there. And I, for my eyes, was just, of all of the guys there, was by far the least talented throwing the football. And so that's what got me kind of concerned about Hawkins. Yeah. I, that's his, he just doesn't look like a very easy thrower of the football. I mean, you see some guys that are just like, oh, yeah, it's just natural. That's what I saw. It just... He didn't seem like a natural throw over the football. His arm looked like not like not terrible, like when he kind of let it go, but also nothing particularly special. So that's that worries me. But at the same time, though, what the heck do I know? I I'm not allowed to talk about quarterbacks anymore. Granted, you know, maybe slowly but surely the the bloom is finally falling off the rose of Jalen Hurts in the NFL. Mm -hmm. Weird. The defense gets bad and now Jalen doesn't look as good funny how that works out and also all those good coaches kind of go and move out watch them come out and just just beat down the bucks though tomorrow uh we'll see anyways uh we'll get we'll get uh yeah i still not allowed to jalen hurts has done a heck of a lot more already in the nfl than i ever thought he would all right so let's move on to let's talk about the offensive line because i know that's been on everybody's minds a lot that's been the a topic uh, that's that's been the a topic within the fan base you know Really, since the new year, since since the portal window opened, all of these, all the NIL stuff, and it's um, it's it, it's it's clearly a thing. It's it's clearly a thing. Like I don't want to sit here and gaslight anybody and say that it's it's not something to think about. Um, I just you know I I've always said like I, I still think the pass defense is the bigger issue going into next season, and it's it's just because of the the track record. OU's pass defense has been bad for fifteen years. OU's offensive line hasn't been bad in fifteen years. That's that's my logic there. Yeah, and this this podcast, I mean, you and I are on the same page with this. And for whatever reason, we just don't subscribe or, or see the same things, I guess, that others do. And go back to the, the beginning. I mean, we've never, since this podcast started, we've never really been against the offensive line because it, it's consistently been good. <laughs> I mean, it just, it has been. And I, I just don't, yes, Caden Green leaving is not good. He's a great player. He, he showed in his time this year he was a really good player. You want players like that on your team. I wish he was on Oklahoma's roster still. I'm not going to panic about it, and I'm not going to all of a sudden decide that Oklahoma's offensive line is bad because it wasn't bad in the bowl game. There were stretches where it was bad. It was bad in the fourth not, quarter. Not through the entire game. And so I've seen a lot more good than bad. And so we asked – you on the West of Evers Facebook page. I, I, you know, we asked you guys, hey, what's, 
what's interesting to you all right now, we got a couple of comments referencing the offensive line. And so, like you said, that's that's been a, a big time topic since the end of the offseason, since Green transferred. And so we'll go to the West of Evers Facebook page and we'll read a comment from Hunter. Hunter says, ready for the third year jumps with the defensive scheme as well as the Schmitty routine. Right now, offensive line is the only concern, but that bodes well when Coach Biedenboe is running it. And Hunter adds, speaking of Schmitty, I think the offensive line will improve a lot. It took Benny Wiley's program three-ish years to see the decline in the ability for linemen to fire off with their butts down. He says, watch tape from the 2017 offensive line and how their posterior chain moved compared to Riley's last year at Oklahoma. It's night and day. But a strength and conditioning program takes about that long to see the full effects across the entire team. I believe we'll see the effects more fully this upcoming year, especially with the guys recruited by Brent Venables who only know the Schmitty workouts. So I'm not going to sit here and, and say that I've gone back and watched and, and watched tape of the 2017 team and see and how the offensive line fires out. I'll take your word for it, Hunter. But I think it's it's a pretty interesting thing to bring up considering you know how much we all kind of did not like Benny Wiley <laughs> at all and how excited we were to to get that change and bring Schmitty in. So yeah, you, you hope that as time goes on with not just the offensive line but every position group that the team just gets stronger. I don't know. I mean, I know one of your big concerns, and this is not really offensive line based, but just it just thought of it. And we haven't really gone back to it since Wiley and Riley left. I mean, you were always concerned about injuries. It's like, man, injuries, injuries, injuries. And I just, what is your feeling now? You know, we're two years into Brent Venables. Do you still have your, man, OU's always getting injured guys and it's strengthening. Did you, what are your thoughts? We haven't really talked about it since. No, I mean, I don't, can we really think of guys? Because they weren't, they weren't that banged up this year. I, I thought that they were, they were banged up in the sense that guys had bumps and bruises. I know Stutzman was out for a bit. But, like, we, we all saw Stutzman's injury. That was, like, a weird fluke thing. Where it was he, in a game, yeah. Where he went, like, ankle to ankle in the, in the end zone in Lawrence. That was, like, which was weird. And so, no, I, I'm, I'm not too concerned about it at this point in time. But also, you never, you never really know because that was a problem in, in Schmidt's kind of last tenure here as guys were getting injured all the time, too. So maybe that was just something that I, that I held on to and I was just looking for any sort of thing to justify that. But... Um, I, I, I do think the offensive line discussion is, is interesting. Um, I think one Benny Wiley being here and just, and just clearly not a guy who is, I, I think the knock on him was always, he's a guy who it's like building strength was never his number one priority. It was more, uh, being flexible and being agile and all of that. And I'm sure that has some, you know, that's probably great for some position groups. Uh, not necessarily the offensive line. I feel like the offensive line, you, you want to beat dudes up. You want to absolutely lean on guys. And so, I think where the offensive line is right now, and like I, I get, like I want to, I want to affirm like some people, like yeah, the, the number situation, and like when you look at all the guys who have left the program and some of the recruiting misses, it's it's fair to be concerned about that stuff. It, it really is. Like it's not in terms of like, in terms of the roster and other position groups. Yeah, it is. It has seen the most churn, and it has had the most um, people coming in and out of the program. It has it has had a lot of recruiting busts and miss and misses. But my perspective is, even with all of that, their offensive line has still pretty much been one of the 10 best in the country every year he's been here. And I, and I know a lot of people don't really feel that way, but I, 
in my opinion, I've seen a lot of bad offensive lines, and OU's just never has been bad. It just hasn't been. Uh, but also, you never want to lean on that, right? You never want to lean on something that's happened in the past because you never know when it could, when, when the worm could turn like that. And so, I want to try to like summarize sort of what where the angst is in the fan base about offensive line right now. Because right now, Lee, I, I think a lot of it is tied up in, and a lot of this stuff is kind of like inside recruiting knowledge. And I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here talking about all of this because it's all going to come out eventually. Um, but I think there's that. There's sort of the roster mismanagement of it. People questioning whether or not Bill Biedenboe is a is able to recruit at an elite level. And also uh, NIL recruiting or NIL essentially bidding wars is also part of this as well. And so it's mostly within the last, you know, in the last week or so, there's been a really, really big time offensive lineman from LSU who hit the, who hit the transfer portal, Zaylin's Hurd, Lance Hurd, former five-star guy. He played one year at LSU. He was a, you know, he was a freshman All-American. And um, he, he visited OU last weekend. And by all accounts, it went really, really well. But as more, as we got further away from the visit, more information came out, and it seemed like when we got further, further away from the visit, OU fans felt worse about it because it started to become clear that it was actually an NIL bidding war, and that's what it was going to be. And kind of the narrative right now is, if OU had the highest bid, he would have come to OU. And he hasn't committed anywhere yet, but it's kind of, a lot of people are sort of kind of writing that off. It's a, it's a Tennessee thing now. And the reason he is not at OU, and I think it's from everything that we know now, it's going to be because OU was not going to play ball in the bidding war. And so I think people are anxious about that, especially going into the SEC. Because there's also there's another guy, Terrence Ferguson, who is a guard from, from Alabama, who, who visited the same day, the same weekend as Lance Hurd. And they felt really good about that. And he's, he's very likely headed to Florida State because they're going to pay him the most money. And that is off the, you know... That was, you know, a couple weeks after Chris McClellan, who is an OU guy, who is a defensive ta- or who is an Oklahoma guy, defensive tackle from Florida. OU felt like they were in good position to him, but he ended up going to Missouri because they're giving him the most money. And so I think OU's NIL strategy in the transfer portal is becoming pretty clear here, which is they're not going to get in bidding wars and they're not going to overpay for guys who they think are asking for more than what they're worth. And... You see teams like Ole Miss and Missouri and Tennessee that right now are routinely beating OU in the bidding wars. And I think, it is, I think it's valid that that makes some OU fans anxious with kind of the, the prevailing wisdom in the SEC is if you want to be successful there, you got to play ball. And so right now, there's a portion of the fan base that thinks that OU is not doing what they need to do to get the elite talents on campus with the NIL. Now, there, is, there, there are some other things that kind of push back against that. For instance, Deion Burks being here now is, is a pushback against that. But that makes me wonder if they are valuing that position more um, and they feel like they needed him more. And so I, like, I get it. I, I totally understand. People feel like we need to spend the money to get the elite players. And hey, it might not work out, but that's also the risk that you're willing to take going into the SEC. My personal feeling on it is that I get you. I hear you. The track record on the offensive line is stellar. It is. And until the chickens come home to roost and it actually looks like the offensive line has taken a massive step back, in my mind, it doesn't make emotional sense yet 
to get really worked up about it because of the track record. Let's see what happens. Because me, I, I think they have. I think they probably found a dude in Fabichi Nawaiu. I think he's a, he's probably a dude. And so, like, I, I think that's a good first step. Okay, so a lot of good stuff there. Let me just read one more comment on the offensive line, because just to get it out of the way, because I appreciate everyone that provides feedback on the West of Everest Facebook page. This one's from Philip. Philip has similar thoughts. He says, "Offensive line. Uh, that's what he's interested in." He says Oklahoma's defense is SCC ready as far as depth and experience, but can Oklahoma really rely on Bill Biedenboe to pull another rabbit out of his hat and put together a line of underclassmen against SEC defensive lines? I hope so. What do you guys think? So just wanted to read Phillip's comment there. Uh, another, just to add on to what you said a second ago, I'm sure I'm with you. I, I'm sure a, a big part of it is one, they don't want to set a precedent. Whoever's in charge of the bidding, they don't want to set a precedent of paying ridiculous amounts of money for one guys that they don't even know and especially if they turn out to be busts and i i know i mean i'm not an expert on this i think uh gabe eichard was the only one that was really trying to provide details of the whole caden green thing and maybe there's other inside sources out there that i I just i don't pay attention to every ou insider thing but i i think there was a number that was pretty fair for caden green like a lot of money that caden green at least according to eichard and Caden Green still didn't come back. But a big part of that probably was because Oklahoma knew Caden Green. They knew he was good. And they're like, all right, well, this could be something that's wor- – we're going to probably pay this guy too much. But we'll offer – I mean, if this is all true, and I believe – you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure Eichard said all this stuff on his podcast. And he still went to Missouri. So I'm with you. It, until it becomes a problem, I think this is totally fair. You can be anxious about it. That's fine. Yeah, I – you got to pay to play if, if that's really what's going on. I get that side, too. It's just the track record with Bill Biedenboe and the offensive line. It could be the, the, the part of it is like, well, you know what? You already have a few transfers that have come in. They're not these blue chip guys, but we'll be all right. And so I wanted to go back and look at the history of Bill Biedenboe since he's been at Oklahoma. And he was hired in February of 2013. And it was right after the 2013 class signed. So Biedenboe had nothing to do with the 2013 class. So Oklahoma's offensive line, and you and I, we agree on this. I mean, and probably even to more extent, we, it, it's been, I was going to say it's been, it's been steady for years, if not steady, but good. And in some years, it's been dominant. I think back to 2017, 2018. 2018, they won the Joe Moore Award. And so I went back and looked at his tenure, Beatenbow's tenure. And the first class that he was in on recruiting was 2014. Since then, he's had... 11 recruiting classes that he's had a hand in all right Uh, including the most recent class in 2024 so I was thinking okay we all are aware of man it seems like there's been some busts on the offensive line like he's got like Bray Walker's the big he's the only five-star they've brought in over this entire time didn't do anything and they're like man like I wish they got more I wish Oklahoma got more elite offensive line recruits so I was like all right well how many guys have been drafted off the offensive line since Biedenboe has been recruiting or he's like helped bring guys in. And so since 2014 was the first class that he had a hand in, I did the math and decided that the 2017 draft, NFL draft, was going to be my starting point because that was the first draft that high school kids who were recruited in 2014 would have been eligible to be drafted. So from 2017 to 2023, that's seven drafts, seven NFL drafts, OU's had nine offensive linemen drafted. 
in seven drafts. Now, to put that number into perspective, I was like, all right, well, I don't know if that, that seems good, but also maybe that's low. I don't know. Like, that's obviously average more than one per draft. I was like, all right, let's look at a couple other big-time programs to compare it to. So I was like, yeah, let's, let's, let's pick Alabama and Georgia. I mean, those are two big-time programs. So during that time span, again, 2017 to 2023, Georgia had 11 offensive linemen drafted. Alabama had 10. So OU just a hair behind two of the most dominant teams in the nation in that span and two teams that Oklahoma is going to be competing directly with now in the SEC. It is important, though, to point out it's about the caliber of player, though, and that's the big difference because Georgia during that time span only produced two more draft picks in Oklahoma, but Georgia produced four first-round picks, and so did Alabama. Alabama also had four. So four out of 11 for Georgia were first-rounders. Four out of 10 for Alabama were first-rounders. For Oklahoma, one first-rounder. That was Anton Harrison. And so that's kind of the – that's where you can nitpick with Bill Biedenboe is that, yes, he's gotten a lot of guys drafted compared to some of the top teams in the nation. It's just the caliber of player has not been the same. Uh, I mean, I mean that's a lot of first-rounders from Bama, though, But, like, how – I mean – and forgive me here, but like I don't, either of those programs haven't put anyone near. Like I, Anton Harrison was great this year for Jacksonville. It was like really, really good. Maybe the best, maybe the best rookie offensive tackle in the league this year. And Orlando Brown has been an All Pro in his career. Creed Humphrey is the best center on the on planet Earth. Um, does does that count for it? Like I, Orlando Brown and Creed Humphrey are probably better than anyone that Georgia and Alabama have put in the league in that time frame. So I'll go through the names here, and I'm not experts because obviously we pay more attention to Oklahoma offensive linemen. But to your point, though, whenever they are all pros and stuff, you know, maybe we know the, about them more. So here's the, the names of the Alabama guys. So uh, Cam Robinson, second-round pick. I think he went to Jacksonville, didn't he? I think, he, and I think he's – I don't he's know if he's fine. still playing. but He's I fine, yeah. I think good. he was oh, – I'm trying to think. Yeah, he's been, he, he's been a pretty good player. Uh, Jonah Williams, he was a first-rounder. I think he's I been a disappointment. He was at Cincinnati, right? He's been a disappointment, I think. 2020, Jedrick Wills. You know, he was uh, protecting Baker Mayfield for a bit. I think he's, I'm guessing he's still on the Browns. Uh, so I think he's been okay. Uh, that same draft, no, 2021. I remember Alex Leatherwood was a first-round pick, but everyone talked about how he was totally overdrafted. I think the Raiders took him. I have no. I think he's been a journey. I don't think he's good. I think like I think the Bears might have tried to sign him, or like so. I think that guy's not worked out. Leatherwood, uh, Landon Dickerson is a center. I don't know if he's been a good player in the NFL. He was a second round pick uh, in twenty twenty two. Evan Neal was a first round pick for Alabama. So you have to check and see if he's doing well. Uh, he's kind of you know still early on in his career. Uh, and then last year they had a guy uh, in a th- they had one third rounder, Tyler Steen. So I don't know. So that's Alabama. For Georgia, the first rounder, Isaiah Wynn, I think he's been good, I believe. I think he's I think. been I think he's been inconsistent. I think he's been like banged up his entire career. But he was the guy, he was like yeah, he was the dominant dude on that twenty seventeen line that in the Rose Bowl. Other first rounders in twenty twenty, they had two first rounders in twenty twenty. Andrew Thomas and Isaiah Wilson. I think Andrew Thomas has has been good when he's been healthy. But I also think he's had some really bad seasons, too. He's been kind of like peaks and valley guy. 
couple mid-round picks. They had uh, they had Solomon Kindley, Ben Cleveland, Trey Hill. I'm not sure if you know any of these names. I don't. Justin Schaefer, Jamari Sawyer. And then last year, they had a first-round pick in Broderick Jones, a tackle. So he's obviously kind of new. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, Oklahoma, I mean, Creed, the three guys you mentioned, Creed, Anton, Orlando Brown, Obviously, some of the other guys like Bobby Evans had a good. I mean, played a little bit. Cody yeah, Ford played. I mean, but but yeah, Cody Ford, Bobby Evans. Yeah, you know, I I think Cody Ford's out of the league now. Bobby Evans. Plays I'm not sure if the, Ben like, Powers is in the league anymore. Ben Powers like, is absolute. Ben Powers is one of the best guards in the in the league. He's been around for a while. He got he got a really large free agent deal this season or at the end of last year. So so that, that's kind of the thing is like, I just wanted to go over it. And again, it it takes a long time to do this research. I. I wish I had the numbers for every SEC team and I, we could compare, you know, heck, maybe Alabama and Georgia and Oklahoma actually at 9, 11, and 10. Maybe that's actually low. I doubt it. But because, uh, like, who knows? Like, I know, like, Iowa, Wisconsin, these big Michigan, teams Notre always Dame have, a bit, have, have, have put a lot of guys in the league in the last handful yeah. of years. So those, those teams might have more technically. Uh, but I, you know, maybe I'll look those up at some point. I just I don't have the numbers. But hey, just for fun, a fun nugget, though. Just to be aware of as I come on, where's my notes? There we go. So what about Texas? You know, direct competition with Oklahoma, still the same in the SEC now, went to the playoff this year. You know how many offensive linemen have been drafted in that span, 2017 to 2023 from Texas? Do you want to make a guess? One. That's close. It's two. I've had two guys in that span. Uh, none of them first rounders. It was Connor Williams in 2018 and Sam Cosme in 2021. I both. Uh, I think Connor Williams has been pretty good in the NFL. Cosme Cosme was really good in college. I I don't know what he's done in the NFL. They're both second round picks, so I, it's that's kind of why you and I are just more like, well, if it starts to look really bad, all right do something different. And I, I understand the argument of like, well, you know what? You probably should try to nip something in the bud before it's a problem. And I, I agree. That's, that's good strategy. The pro I do agree with is, that too. I just don't think it, and I don't think Oklahoma sees it right now as a problem yet. And so like I've said before, like we've kind of reiterated on this podcast, like until the offensive line on the field looks to be an issue, I'm going to give Bill Biedenboe the benefit of the doubt. And yeah, I'd like to see more higher caliber recruits come in. Uh, that would probably enhance Oklahoma's chances of having more first and second round draft picks. Sure. But as we've said, Bedenbo, I think, has done an excellent job at developing offensive lines that have been consistently good at keeping Oklahoma's quarterbacks clean. And when Oklahoma actually plays their good running backs on the roster, more often than not, those guys have found room to run on behind Oklahoma's offensive lines. And so looking ahead to 2024 to kind of hit on some of the, the comments and questions and you know the thoughts on the offensive line. You're hoping that the 2022 and the 2023 classes can hit. Jacob Sexton, Jake Taylor, Joshua Bates, Heath Ozida, and then you got the transfer guys that are coming in, and there's been transfers that played a lot in the last handful of years for Bill Biedenboe on the offensive line. And so you got guys, you got Brown, the guy coming in from Michigan State, Tarquin from USC, and Fabechi Wiwu is how you say that guy's name, from North Texas. So, uh, yeah, it, those guys mix with the younger guys. That's where you hope they hit. And I'm 
at this point, I'm confident that they're going to find somebody. And, you know, maybe guys like, you know, the, the Exodus, the, the Nate Andersons and the Savian Birds, like they transfer. Maybe they just knew that the younger guys were better than them. I, and that's why they like maybe they think, man, we've been here. We're still not going to get a chance to play next year because because Jake Taylor and Jacob Sexton's better than me or Joshua. Like, like, it, it's not unreasonable to think that could be the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the big the big X factor is they they really really need to hit on on Heath Ozida and Josh Bates. I, I think those are like the really really big ones that they need to hit on. Uh, Jake Taylor is going to be in his third year in the program here. He was a guy who I really really liked in that class. Um, kind of disappointed that he hasn't been able to sort of take it and run with it and get more playing time. But there's just a lot more to play out. They didn't get Walter Rouse until last spring, until after spring ball. And I just, um, you know. One one area where I where I disagree with a lot of people is isn't a lot of the rhetoric from the offensive line the last two years. I the last two seasons the offensive line has been terrific. They've been really good uh, the last two seasons, twenty two and twenty three. I think they've been really really good, and um, and in a lot of ways have have kind of wasted. I think the two best offensive lines they've had since they won the Joe Moore Award. And this, I mean, and this year it was straight up given the ball to Javante Barnes and Marcus Major way too much. That made it look yeah. worse. Made it look worse. Yeah, I mean, I, I almost forgot that Javante Barnes even played a bit, but he, yeah, he, he did play a little bit at the start of the year. You're right. All right, so that's, yeah, good offensive line talk. You guys know where we stand on it. We got some more Facebook comments and questions potentially to, to get to. Uh, so I, I mentioned Shane earlier in the show. He had a comment talking about Ted Roof, and uh, he had another part of his comment, so I'll, I'll read that now, and it's, it's going a different direction. He says, Shane says, I'm interested in whether or not Oklahoma will be in play for any of the inevitable transfers from Alabama and Washington. Also curious, oh, he says, why is it taking so long to announce the defensive coordinator? Well, that's been, that's been settled. So Zach Alley has been announced. So uh, we'll... So, yeah, I mean, obviously, the Nick Saban retires. Kalen DeBurr takes the Alabama job. Okay, think, are there going to be some exodus from the programs? Yes, the answer is yes. Could Oklahoma get any of those guys? That's the question. Maybe. I mean, it's and – I, and I think, you know, this is where some of the angst comes from. A lot of those guys are going to be bidding wars. And I do think OU has proven that they are not going to get into bidding wars unless they value a guy extremely highly. So are you a guy in a position? Exactly. So I, you know, we'll find out. I, I, I thought, and so I've kind of burying the lead here. I mean, Nick Saban retiring is is mammoth earthquake news. This is like it almost signals and a change. It does. It signals a changing of the guard in college football. I like I've said it on this podcast. Nick Saban broke college football. This is like he is almost the main reason why college football has felt so weird the last fifteen years. Just because his level of dominance is is unprecedented in this sport, and I, I mean, I think him retiring is just a huge, huge earthquake, like on the in the landscape of college football. And Alabama, that's them hiring hiring Kalen DeBoer. That's a fantastic hire. That is, they got it right. I think, and you know what? Like that of all of the the, the of all of the coaches that they could hire. I thought that one benefited OU the least of all of them. So I think it's, it's not as big of an earthquake as it would have been 
because I think Kirby Smart has taken over the reins of the new Nick Saban. I mean, Georgia has become just as or even more dominant than Bama was at the height. Yeah, but also Nick, so Saban, it's like, Nick Saban at his peak yeah. never would have lost that SEC championship game like Georgia did. Just wouldn't have happened. Probably not. I mean, that's... I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, I wonder if Bama fans can point to some head-scratching weird losses. Granted... They never lost those games in like playoff or like it was always kind of, they if they lost something it would be in the you know regular season right or the uh, only I mean, the only SEC title game Saban ever lost was was last season against Georgia. Wow, and that was and that was a historically good Georgia team. Okay, well, so that's yeah that that's the thing is I kind of want like we could we're gonna talk about this I, I did want to kind of answer the or give more thoughts on you know whether OU can maybe get some of these guys and I, I don't know I mean as far as I can tell as far as Alabama goes as far as the transfer portal players leaving I believe as we record now as far as I can tell Alabama's got three guys in the portal the receiver Isaiah Bond and a couple of freshman defensive backs and I did see that one of the DBs Antonio Kite may have gotten some small interest in his recruiting from Jacksonville State. He's from Alabama. So, I don't know, maybe Zach Alley's I'm sure he's probably familiar with that guy. I don't you know, who knows? Like unless there like unless there's some sort of inside OU sources I'm not aware of though. I, I don't know if Oklahoma has any shot at these guys. Right my now from feeling, Bama, I just my feeling is yeah. the only guys that OU would be interested in at this point in time anywhere. This is the entire landscape of college football are just trenches, guys in the trenches, mostly the interior of the trenches. You want defensive tackles and guards. I think that's kind of what they're looking for right now. And those are, I mean, those guys are going to be really expensive in the portal. Uh, you know, it's, it is what it is. I, I don't expect OU to get anybody from Alabama or Washington. And like one of the things that I, I think them hiring Kalen DeBoer, and it also looks like he's going to be bringing Ryan Grubb with them. And just like, what a coup for Alabama getting that. I mean, that's a, um, like, I know Isaiah Bond is in the portal. I, I mean, and, and I'm sure, you know, it's, it's it's one thing you probably a lot of the time you commit to Alabama now to play for Nick Saban. It's just it's just a good business decision for everybody who does it. Um, guy like Isaiah Bond, man, I just really hope he does not end up in Austin, which almost seems like it's a, like a really really good possibility because he, he I, in my opinion, he's he's Alabama's best offensive player from this past season. And um, I'm just like, yeah, if, if I'm Isaiah Bond though, and like I have Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb coming in, like it. It'd probably behoove him just to stay put. That was a uh, that was a great I agree, hire. Man. Great hire from Alabama. Um, they I I think they got that. I I just I don't like he, no one will ever reach the heights of Nick Saban again. Uh, he's he's the best ever for a reason. But they're they're not going to drop too far with Kalen DeBoer. That guy is a he's he's a great coach. Yeah, it's a it's a terrific hire, and even man, it's the old the old saying or the old theory or whatever like you don't, you never want to be the guy that comes after the guy you want to be the the next guy and you know obviously like Lincoln Riley was comes after Bob Stoops and, and does well does great and then now you know obviously he's kind of the, the the luster is off of Lincoln and he's a he's an offensive coordinator Lincoln Riley's an offensive coordinator that that's that's what he is he's he's a really good offensive mind it'd probably behoove him at some point to just go back to being an OC granted he's not gonna get paid as much as he is as a head coach I think that's kind of what he is, unless we see some dra unless his he's finally swallowed his pride after all these years, 
going into the Big Ten. I mean, we'll we'll see. People can change. I mean, especially in the coaching ranks. I mean, people can can adapt and evolve. Riley has shown no ability to do that in his time as a as a head coach. Maybe he will now. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, if you're gonna go to Alabama, that's a, that's a one of the elite. Like, do you want to be the next guy after Nick Saban? Well, Kalen DeBurr is about as good as you can get because. That dude, he's like 48, 49. He's been around the block. He's coached, what, at the FCS level. Like, he's coached at a lot of different levels. Like, he's he's worked his way up. He's super confident. He's won. I mean, you think he's worried about being the guy after Saban? No, he don't care. He's like, no, yeah, I'm a good coach. I know I am. And I'll, now I get to go to Alabama. So, I, I'm with you. It's Man, it's it stinks that they got this guy that's this good. Yeah, and my... And, in, in, in my eyes, there were there were three guys that Bama could hire that would have been massive slam dunks given the circumstances. Landing was one of them; would have definitely been one of them. Um, DeBoer was the other, and the other was Chris Kleiman. All three of those would have been fantastic hires for Alabama. <laughs> and no way Bama would hire Chris Kleiman. No, nah, probably, <laughs> that's but not, it would have been flashy enough. I, I still think that would have been really, really smart like a, a sort of a forward-looking thing. Mm. Um, in terms of like OU, it would have been best for OU for them to hire. Uh, Sark and Lane Kiffin at the top of the Sark, list yeah. would have been, um, like that would have been the best. Only just because Sark has clearly done a good job at Texas and Texas has a, a program history of striking out on hires and not doing a good job. And then with the Lane Kiffin thing, it would have, in my mind for right now, would have just taken Ole Miss off the board. Uh, I, I think Ole Miss right now is doing well be, because of Lane Kiffin, and it just it just would have been nice to take them off the board as as a team to worry about like right now like being intensely worried about. So um, that's yeah, DeBoer coming. It's just like yeah, it's a Washington team that just had two really good seasons with him, but they're in the Big Ten. OU's never going to see them. You know, like they landing going to Alabama would have been interesting because Oregon right now is kind of like a recruiting and NIL behemoth. And that, that OU kind of goes up against head-to-head like pretty often. And that would have been nice to see Oregon maybe... Like, it would have been sweet if Oregon made another Mario Cristobal-like hire. That's a bad hire. Um, but they... I mean, they went and they, they got they got someone who was really good. And it doesn't... It's a guy who OU doesn't ever directly compete with, but now is going to. Yeah, certainly makes it interesting. Well, even more interesting maybe than it would have been. I mean... OU playing, hosting Alabama next year. It's not going to be Saban. That's crazy. It's going to be Kalen DeBurr. But also, yeah, you're right. I mean, head coach. Nick Saban retiring, you know, in the offseason right before OU go into the SEC. I hope that is symbolically relevant. Like, that's good. I'm very happy that OU does not have to deal with Nick Saban at all while they're in the SEC. Yeah. That is, that is fortunate in that regard. Maybe Kalen DeBurr won't be able to figure out the defense the same way that obviously Saban did maybe that'll be kind of his his weakness I mean the, the Washington defense this year when was was fine I mean it was I'd say it I mean they adjusted pretty well right, we'll, we'll get into it um, Washington's defense did what they and we'll get to the net but in sort of like the middle of the game the second and third quarters Washington's defense did everything they could to get yeah. them back in that game yeah before we, we get to that we'll talk about Michigan winning I, I do I do want to read one more comment our old friend Harry had a comment, and he says that he thinks if Venables never goes back to Oklahoma, that Brent would have been a, would have been a candidate for the Alabama job because it was Brent's defense that made Clemson so dominant. 
it's interesting question. Harry, I, let's say if Venables was still a DC at Clemson right now, I, I don't know how high he'd have been on Bama's list. I mean, maybe he'd have been on the list, but I mean, I still think if everything played out the way that he would not have been above like DeBoer or Lanning or Sark or, I mean, I, I just maybe so I, I, that's kind of the thing is like Venables still has a lot to prove, man. Like he bounced back. They won 10 games this year. Great. That first year was still awful. That was awful. That first year was bad. Six and seven. It, he is still very much on the, I'm not sure if he's the guy. <laughs> Sorry. It's, that's a game. Like his recruiting has been great. That's awesome. We're going to learn more going into the SEC. He's, he's made some good offseason moves, getting rid of Ted Roof, bringing in Zach Alley now. Uh, the defense has got to be better. It made a big jump from 22 to 23, but it was a defense that still wasn't very good. Over, it wasn't, still wasn't very good defense. I mean, it, it, was, it was a Jekyll and it was a, a defense between two, two halves of the year. First half of the year, it was actually pretty darn good. Great stop in the run. Last half of the year, that part wasn't that great, and it, it was never very good at defending the pass. And so, anyways, like that's I don't know if I mean who knows may, maybe the last two years, if Venables was still at Clemson and Clemson's defense was still doing Clemson things, which it probably would have been. I don't know. Maybe they'd have been like, ah, oh, maybe we want to go that route. But organic, interesting, organic pass rush is the name of the game. That's what you, I, that just won Michigan a national title, an organic pass rush. So, yeah, let's talk about it. Michigan wins it all. And the game played out kind of the way that it had to play out for Michigan to win. And we laid it out. I mean, I said Michigan wins the game by just running the ball down Washington's throat, controlling the clock, controlling the game. And they didn't necessarily control the clock, but they did run the ball down Washington's throat enough early on. And those, those first half big plays, explosive plays that Washington gave up were just so killer. Because you – uh, alluded to it a moment ago Washington's defense did settle in the middle portion of the game and did do a great job slowing down the run and really it was up until I think the fourth quarter I mean there was a span between maybe the middle of the second quarter and kind of early fourth quarter or so where Washington's defense didn't let Michigan really do anything and it was the series where J.J. McCarthy for the first time all night used his legs a couple of times that kind of broke Michigan out of its funk offensively and the rest of the game from there on out was kind of just downhill uh, for Washington so I don't I mean that Washington defense statistically was not very good but it was good enough to make those adjustments Oklahoma's defenses in 2017 2018 like it was never good enough to make any sort of adjustments in game like that to slow down offenses that they gave to give Oklahoma's offense a chance <laughs> exactly exactly and um I'm, you know, I'm, I'm of the opinion you got to give Michigan's defense a lot of credit. That is, you know, we, we talked about it, you know, how they haven't played a lot of offenses, a lot of great offenses this year, haven't really been tested. Um, they got their biggest test of the season, and they, they passed with flying colors. And they, uh, Penix was was really bad in that game, um, was real, real he bad. He was awful. And I think, um, you know, I, I, th I think the a lot of kind of the prevailing narrative was like, you know, give Michigan credit for that. They were they were breathing down his neck the entire game and he was, you know, he was itchy and he was, and like, I, I think there is definitely some truth to that, but there's also some truth to the, him just being awful. He was just really, really bad on Monday night. And, um, it's, there's a lot of things that go into that, but I, I like, I, I'm okay with, with tipping my cap to Michigan. That is their secondary is 
exceptionally good. It's it's very, very good. They play well together. And outside of Will Johnson, who is probably the best corner in college football and is going to be back next year too, they, they just had a bunch of fifth and sixth year guys in the secondary who have played together for a long time and clearly just play really good zone defense, which is the thing that OU is terrible at. That's interesting that that's your takeaway because my takeaway is actually it's just it's Michigan's front seven. I, the secondary is fine. I don't think it's secondary is that big of a – that's not the reason. It's that organic pressure you're talking about. Uh, weirdly, though, I, Pinnock wasn't really under that much pressure all night. I think – what, did they sack him maybe once, once or twice? And I get that he got hurried and stuff, but the, compared to what they did to Jalen Milrow, like he was – he couldn't do anything. And that to me, that's why it was even more ridiculous that Pinnock was so bad. I thought he had time. I, he, he was just off. I mean, the, it all, the biggest one was in the first half where he had wide open Odunze on the deep uh, kind of, uh, po- uh, not post, but kind of flag route. I think it was supposed to be like a corner route. On fourth route. down. I think it was supposed to be a corner route that Michi- Michigan just blew it. I mean, they just, they blew the coverage. And I, like, I don't know, yeah, I mean, I th- it, it was almost like Penix panicked. He didn't, he, he threw the corner route. And, but like Odunze was just like, holy crap, I'm wide open. And he was basically running like a, a go from there. And or at least that's what I that's what it felt like happened, but then there were other instances. You know the the touchdown pass that he threw in the first quarter at the end of the or in, in the in the first half, where he threw across his body and hit McMillan in the back of the end zone. Like that was a great play. Like that looked like that looked like the Penix from from the Texas game where he was under pressure and he just like didn't have time to think and he just kind of let it loose. But um, I thought there were times too where where Washington's offensive game plan was just kind of off. And just didn't seem very good. Like I thought the um, the pick that he threw to Sanistrill in the fourth quarter was a really good illustration of where Penix struggled over the course of the game, because to his left he just looks to his left. Odunze was wide open, twenty yards downfield. Wait, what? Sorry, you you broke up uh, you broke up a bit. What part of the game? Uh, it was when they were down by two touchdowns. And he threw like the game-ending pick to Sanistrill that was returned. Oh, oh my gosh! Um, Odunze yeah. was it was it was a perfect play call. They did like, and Michigan did not defend it well. Odunze was wide open over the middle for a twenty-yard gain and a first down. And I, Penix just stared down. I can't remember if it was Poker McMillan he went to there, but just yeah. stared him down, stared him down. I, yeah. Okay. So, but, but I just went and looked it up. One sack. They sacked Penix one time in the game and and yes Michigan does deserve credit for getting in his head and and kind of being you know that bug in his ear that probably led to some of the uncertainty probably I mean that's what it was where it's just it's so I'm sure Texas fans watched that were like are you kidding me the dude was just dropping dimes all day against Texas and then he was just totally off against Michigan but again like there were some things in that Texas game again, like where I think like better defenses would have been able to make plays on. Yeah, the de- like the, the quality of the defenses matters here. Like I mean, against yeah. anyone with a pulse throwing the ball this year, Texas gave up yards. Like and and as and Michigan didn't give up passing yards to anyone this year. Like they just they suffocated you. And so like there's obviously there's a lot going on there. Obviously. Well, I think to me it. it played out because texas could not get any pressure on him like so i think texas's defensive line i i'm always i was always kind of like I, I just don't know anything about defensive lines i guess like i never really understood the texas defensive lines being awesome like to me it was like maybe because i'm just looking at the ou game and it didn't impress me at all in the ou game uh, michigan and penn state like those defensive lines as much as i hate to admit it like 
they get they just bull rush people and get pressure. The thing is, though, better game plans like you can get the, if you get the ball out quick, you can you can make them kind of hang back and not give as much pressure. Uh, and and Washington couldn't do that. And with with all of the issues Washington had, they were still in the game pretty late into it. And it was that that bad holding call. And I can't remember if that was the fourth or the third quarter that they hit a big play to Odunze up the sideline that got called back. And from there on out, it was like over. And it just, it didn't look like a holding to me. It looked kind of like a lazy flag by the referee. And it's one play and Michigan was better the entire game. So whatever. But it kind of robbed us, I think, of maybe a, a more interesting finale of that game. Yeah, that was their longest play of the game at the time if it would have stood. It was like a 33-yard completion or something like that. They're... And yeah, I, I'm it is bad holding call. He I holding usually requires you to grab something and there was no grabbing happening on that whatsoever. So um but like also you can like it's kind of like there was an instance where it where it's like, oh yeah, that typically looks like a holding a lot of the time. The guy just actually never grabbed him. And he actually and so it and I know a lot of people upset. Like I I, I did feel like Michigan got a, got away with a lot on the offensive line as well. And um, it was just it was just their time. It was their day, and I think there's uh, that's you know that's frustrating to me. It's like I whenever I watch these national championship games now, and I see like them, and I see like you know all of the shots of the Michigan fans, or it clearly means like so much to them. And it because um, really, I mean, that's the first time a vast majority of Michigan fans have ever experienced a real national title. Like it was. Their last one was in 1997, and they split that with Nebraska, who, like, I know, and, you know, I was seven years old at the time, but if you go back and read and listen to people at the time, like, Nebraska would have been a pretty heavy favorite on a neutral field against Michigan that season. And um, so, yeah, I mean, this is, for a lot of Michigan fans, this was the first time they ever saw, like, an elite, elite team that they had actually get to the promised land. And, like, I watched that, and it's hard not to it's hard not to feel like a little bit of jealousy or a little bit of, because, you know, the further and further it gets, man, I mean, I was, I was 10 years old when the OU one happened. You go on YouTube and watch it now, and it looks like it's from the 70s. And um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, yeah, I would, would, would really love to experience that. It's, and you throw in the fact that it just, Oklahoma has been, and whatever, they, this is the game. This is what it is. They had all their best teams kind of in the last decade or so, 15 years, at times when other programs were just even more dominant. And, you know, Michigan, heck, Michigan gets a chance last year. And I know, I guess, what the year before they made the playoff and they got just blown out, right, uh, by Bama or something or like who – didn't they get smoked their first year in the playoff? Yeah, they lost to, they lost to Georgia in like one of those Georgia where like okay. – where Georgia like ended the game in the first like 10 minutes of the first quarter and then just sort of toyed with them and kept them at arm's length the entire time. So that was kind of Michigan's welcome to the playoff moment. But then their next year, they get in and, oh, congrats. You get to play TCU. You need to play a, a, like a big 12 team that's not Oklahoma. And they lose. <laughs> they can't even beat TCU uh, because TCU has a good offense. And then TCU gets absolutely blown up by Georgia. And then they make it again. And it, it just it adds to their Cinderella season where they get an SEC team, but it's 
one of the worst SEC teams we ever see make the playoff. It's, it's a it's I, a essentially a Big Ten team. It's a it's, team that they've already Nick beaten Saban's, a couple times. It's Nick Saban's second worst team he ever had at Alabama. After after his so, first season, man, it's 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 a team. I mean, it's it's a team very similar to like Ohio State or Penn State, who they had already beaten this year. And it's like, all right, we'll just do the same thing basically against Bama, and so they get the benefit of that. Like they finally play an S- like another SEC team. The first time they got just destroyed by Georgia. Then they get an SEC team, but it's it's a good matchup. And then in the title game, they don't get an, like an SEC, a really good. They get a Pac-12 team. They get a Pac-12 team. It's good. Washington. I think Washington deserved probably the one seed in this play. I thought their their season was a lot more impressive resume wise, in my opinion, than Michigan. So this is all hindsight stuff, but just matchup wise, they get a Washington team that is in the Pac-12 and defensively like one of the worst playoff defenses we've seen especially to make the title game and so that that's pretty beneficial as well like Oklahoma never got I mean LSU was maybe the 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 worst defensive team they'd faced in the last I don't know 10-15 years in these playoff scenarios the 2019 LSU and that LSU defense was pretty good but it was like middle of the pack statistically and but the offense was the best offense ever <laughs> so and they just beat the crap out of people the other defenses they saw were those clemson defenses the georgia defense in 2017 alabama 2018 which i guess that alabama defense though got just smoked by clemson didn't they so, i mean yeah but you gotta yeah. like you're talking the amount of nfl stars that were on both of those teams is obscene like it's just, it's not even it's stupid when you actually go down the list and look at it. And so yeah, Oklahoma has all these chances, all these years where they're they're competing, and it's just we we still haven't had a chance to see them get over the hump. Whereas now Michigan, yeah, I, I suppose they've been pretty good now the last since Harbaugh's been there, they've been pretty good. They've never really been a title contender until the last few years, and boom, they got it. And we'll see if Harbaugh stays. And even if he doesn't stay, the way they're playing football right now seems like it's it's working pretty well in the Big Ten. Granted, the Big Ten's changing, so that'll be kind of interesting to kind of watch. But yeah, I'll give credit to Michigan as much as I don't want to. They they took advantage of a really easy schedule, and they won it all. Like that, they, their biggest test of the year, they ended up winning it, and their defense showed up. And man, like how big was it? Like. Penix turning the ball over immediately coming out of the locker room in the second half. Awful pick. Just, yeah. And I guess, yeah, and there was a, you know, yeah, they, they had an easy schedule, but, you know, they also got a break and that. I think, you know, most odds makers would say that, you know, Georgia was the was the other best team in the country, and I'm sure. Oh, yeah, that's a good um, And so they missed them in the playoff. But, hey, I you know, when OU won their title in 2000, they didn't have to play Miami. And, like, that's. But like, that's one of the things. They can never take it away from you. That's always just like sort of a hypothetical. And we talk about Michigan's schedule being pretty easy. I, I do have to say, I, I think there are some arguments that I accept that say, like, it's, it's not crazy to think that when Ohio State was at full strength and they had all their guys, Ohio State may have been the second best team in the country this year. They, Ohio State was, their defense was terrific this year. And they also had Marvin Harrison Jr. And, and Michigan beat them. Like, they, they beat them. And the other, the only other team I would say that flashed like a higher ceiling, that you know that Michigan didn't have to deal with was was probably like Oregon, but also they Oregon they they lost the two games they couldn't lose 
And so they, they didn't have an argument for a shot there. And it just, it does go to show that you, you do need some good fortune a lot of the times, unless you're Nick Saban, Alabama, and, and every second guy on your roster is a pro bowler. And like, I think that's, I, and I, I think the Nick Sabanization of the sport, I'm, I'm sitting here and crossing my fingers that that was an outlier in the history of our sport. I like, I know a lot of people have been talking about with Michigan winning and them only being at like 54% in the blue chip ratio. Talk about fortune. They, they played the other team in the playoff that had a blue chip ratio like in the thirties. And so like Michigan, like OU's blue chip ratio is higher than Michigan's. And, um, Michigan was fortunate in the national title game. They got to play the one team that they were, they were more talented than like on paper. And that's, that's really never been the case. Like OU has gone into the playoff with like a 75% blue chip ratio only to play a team with like an 89% one. So like it's, it is what it is. You have to time the years right. And if you, if you really want to buy into just like narrative and everything and like we've said it, you know, OU was 23 years ago was really fortunate in those circumstances that they won a title with like Bob Stoops is like fourth or fifth best team. And sometimes it just works out that way. All right. You know, and we already saw, so we saw Washington, Michigan. Now, now I, I want to see, I'd love to see what, what Texas would have done against Michigan because Texas's run defense is obviously a lot better than Washington. But granted, you know, Penix is better than, than um, yours, but Penix was so bad in that game. I, I mean, I'm just kind of curious. Like, would that have been more difficult for Michigan because maybe Texas comes out and stymies the the run game, and those big plays don't happen as much? And and I don't know. Maybe maybe that forces JJ McCarthy. Like, maybe maybe I got to throw against his bad Texas secondary. Can he do it? Maybe. Like, I, I think don't know Washington's secondary. Good. I think Washington's I, secondary is better than Texas's. So like I. It would have played. I, I I think the games would have played out like kind of similarly. Obviously, Michigan would not have been able to run the ball as well on Sweat and Murphy, but I I don't I don't know if Ewers is is making a lot of high level throws against that defense if Penix wasn't able to because like we said on last week on this Ewers is is what what is what prevented Texas from being elite on offense this year. It was Ewers. Yeah. Who knows though? Maybe Sark would have had a better game plan than old Grubby. Honestly, not I think sure he I probably would have. I'm not sure why I called him. I, I didn't. I didn't like Grubbs' game plan. I, there was way too much short stuff. Way too much short stuff. It was almost like they were they were not confident that they'd be able to block those Michigan guys. And I That's think what they it seemed did. like. I think they blocked them pretty good. Again, like one sack. I, I think uh, yeah. that's a game where you have to. And like, I'm not saying like always just block with five guys, but that's a game where you have to realize, hey, our our chance is is in this is throwing haymakers down the field. And we're going to block with five guys, sometimes six guys. And we just have to rely on our mobile quarterback to make space and do it. And, and also my good receivers to, to make plays against these, these defensive backs, which they are more than capable of, I thought. So, uh, I like Roma Dunze a lot. I do. He's, he's a good player. I, I like all. I like their yeah. top three. I like Odunze and Polk. And Mc, I think Polk and McMillan are, have juice. I think they're really explosive. And... Um, mm. Yeah, that was the that was the the matchup that they needed to exploit. And like, I'm even like I, if I was watching, I wouldn't even have bothered running the ball in that game at all. I'd have thrown it sixty times. Just oh, I'm glad you brought that up. That's that's another big part of that game. The running back for Washington, who looked like he was gonna die against Texas, and they couldn't get him off the field, plays. It's like all right. That to me, that's always a bad luck. It's like 
he was he couldn't move. It's like now you're a week later. Now you're playing, obviously injured. It's like oh yeah, he's tough. Like okay, sure, whatever. Why was he had no juice? He sucks. Sorry, in that game he was he sucked. I'm sure he's a good player when he's he's healthy. You tell me Washington's running back room might be worse than Oklahoma's if they had nobody behind him that they trusted to take snaps in that game. Imagine if Gavin Sawchuk was that that uh, immobile in a big game like that, and Oklahoma just kept giving him the ball when he can't move. That's what that was against with Washington. We'd have been like, give the ball to Tawi. Heck, give it to Javante Barnes. Like, I, give it to somebody who can move. That was a huge part of the game, and he was a big part of their offense. He had a ton of touches. He could not go side to side. He could go forward okay, but he had no burst at running back, and I thought that really hindered Washington's offense in that game. And I thought that was a – I, I mean, I, Washington fans have to be like – unless, I mean, they know more about the team than we do, obviously. Maybe they just don't have any other running backs. But, man, I thought that was a huge part of the game. And, of course, you know, a, a team with a good offense, you know, one running back injury and then, yeah, not great. Meanwhile, Michigan has the two running backs and the guy that, you know, I can't think of the, the other guy other than Corum. Donovan the two Edwards. big runs. Edwards, which he was really good against Ohio State and Penn State. And so, but he did, he did nothing against Alabama. Well, Ed, yeah, Edwards had kind of an Washington. odd year. He was really good last year really good last year and then he he struggled this year like I think he he like going into that game he was averaging like close to like under four yards per carry like hadn't had a great season and then yeah he he looked wow. like and against Washington he looked like he did last season explosive able to take it to the house hmm. so I mean well, and, I guess he was and, good like, against Penn State not and I thought it was State, interesting sorry. like and this is what I I do find it interesting that Alabama just kind of want like or no, I'm sorry. Michigan won it, and they they looked like an early like an early Nick Saban team that that won the national title. Like that's that's how they won it, and um, I you know good for them. I, I guess yeah. Tip your cap. I um, man, I don't like Michigan. I haven't liked them in a long time. I'm I'm like one of those ones who kind of revels in them being pretty clearly the most overrated major program in college football history. Um. But yeah, I mean they're 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 natty clearly meant a lot to their fans and it's uh man, really, really would like that for OU someday. But you gotta find the right guys, you gotta find the right circumstances, and start next year, man, it's gonna get a whole heck of a lot harder. All right, let's steer the car back to Oklahoma real quick, because I want to bring this up because I just think it's interesting. Our guy Marcus Major got into the portal, you knew that. And now he's uh, he's found a new home, <laughs> and I he's going to Minnesota, where uh, Grant is an alum. So you just cannot get you cannot get away from our guy Marcus Major. I this is fascinating to me. Minnesota was bad this year on offense, so I guess maybe <laughs> maybe Marcus is a good fit. But I I mean you know a little bit more about Minnesota's roster makeup and their team. Like where does is he have a chance of playing this next year, Grant? So he will not um yeah, I mean he's got a chance. They're um so they they bring back their Minnesota's just best player in general is a uh, was was a freshman running back this year named Darius Taylor. He is back. Um and so if if Darius Taylor is healthy, he Marcus Major will not sniff any of his carries. But I uh, you know I hope the change of scenery does him some good. And you know what? It's 
Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, is a really, really fun place to go to college. And this is, I, I, you know, in that regard, that's a good choice for him. And maybe getting away from Oklahoma is a good thing for him. Based off of what I've seen from Marcus Major in his career, Marcus Major is a borderline FBS player, much less a Power 5 player. And um, he's okay catching the ball out of the backfield. Minnesota does not throw the ball to their running backs. So it'll, uh, it'll be interesting to see what sort of role he has and if he's able to carve out anything. But um, I'm on the watch. If, if Marcus Major comes here and he doesn't do a thing here at Minnesota, I think it tells you a whole lot. A whole lot. I mean, he struggled to find holes behind Oklahoma's offensive line and Oklahoma's offensive system. You think he's going to be able to run behind Minnesota's offensive line and that offensive system or one of the worst offenses in college football this past year? Uh, we'll see. We'll see, but, you know, it's... um. Yeah, don't don't want to wish ill on the kid at all. Like, I hope he comes here and I hope he's no, successful. No, it's just... I really hope he's successful. The, the thing is, yeah, he, for all intents and purposes, he's a good kid. I, he is. I know he is. It's just it's, he, was, he was put in a bad spot by the coaching staff. Like, he was given all these opportunities that other players on the team were not afforded, really. And I, I don't know why. And he would, So it's almost like it, just, it was a very unfair situation where he weirdly got way more opportunity than, he, than his play on the field should have allowed him to. <laughs> And then that, that makes you kind of a punching bag whenever we see other players when they get chances that are, that are clearly better, but then they don't get any run. And if it wasn't for him getting injured again, if it wasn't for whatever injury he had this year, which I'm not even sure, it was kind of just all of a sudden he was just out and he, he was injured because he always gets injured. Uh, who knows how much he would have just kept going and kept playing. I, I don't get it. But and yeah, so, we'll see. Uh, how about uh... – how about, you know, the the one the one two running backs this year in the first half of the season for OU go to bitter rivals, bitter Big 10 rivals against each other. Major going to Minnesota, Tawi going to Wisconsin. And uh we'll see what that looks like. We'll see we'll see what happens. And I like I I think Tawi's got a really good chance to be Wisconsin's lead back next season. And he's earned it and he deserves it. And he'll probably be great if he is. Yeah, it's a great spot for him to go. You go to or Wisconsin, another one of those teams in the Big Ten that likes to have good offensive line play, and uh, you know Fickle's going to want to run the ball. And you know, I, I actually, I know they made a big change offensively with Mordecai, and you know, who knows if they? I don't know, but yeah, no, I, we all like Tawi. This is a this is a very pro Tawi podcast. <laughs> all right, so into uh, the show here. We've been doing this for she's we're really good at making these episodes way longer than I, I think they're going to be. Uh, basketball team, boy, we all kind of hoped that they would beat Kansas and they didn't, they, they, they gave Kansas a run for, they gave Kansas a run for the first, uh, 25 minutes of the game, they 27 took a, they, minutes of the game. Yeah, it took a two point lead with like 18 minutes to go in the second half. And then from there it was just, yeah, I don't have to say Like I, I watching their, their last two games, uh, they've played really poorly the last two games. Just turning it over way too much, missing way too many wide open threes. Um, they they just got to play better. I I, like, I don't really know. I, I thought they played well for the most part against Iowa State in the Big Twelve opener. They I mean they were they played a really poor game against TCU midweek. That was a game where I, I like TCU doesn't really impress me that much, and um, 
their their defense, which is supposed to be the strength of their team, these last two games on the road, it's been bad. The defense has been bad. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a cliche. It's like, oh, tough to tough to win on the road in the Big Twelve. It's like, well, both these games are on the road, and they lose both. And you know, yeah, I don't know. I I haven't watched the basketball team play as much. I did watch that Iowa State game. I I don't know. I thought they were. I mean, they were defensively, I guess, good, but they didn't offensively. I don't think it was that great against Iowa State either. I mean, they were able to pull that game out. It was a good win. Iowa State is. Um Per Ken Palm, they're they had the third best defense in the country. So I mean, Iowa State's okay. an, an elite, elite defensive team. Maybe the best in the or Houston probably the best defense in the Big Twelve. But um, Iowa State right up there. And so like I thought that was a good. And you know what I like? What they look like to me is a team that can probably beat anyone in the country at home, but they're gonna suck on the road. Which hey, it's that's <laughs> that's not that sounds like college basketball a vast majority of college basketball teams outside of like five to 10 teams per year, usually. And yeah, Kansas always seems to play really well when they play OU in Lawrence, but I mean, Kansas did play well, but they, they provided openings for OU in that game. And that's the OU worst. Just couldn't take advantage of it by my eyes. That's the worst Kansas team I've seen in a long time. That was OU has, has taken much better Kansas teams to the wire and fog Allen than that one. And I think that's that's the toughest pill to swallow in this 23-game, 31-year losing streak there now is that OU has, has brought some really great teams to Lawrence and still has not been able to, to win. And, and I think, like I said, I th- at least in the last 15 years, that's the worst Kansas team that OU has played in Lawrence. And they got, honestly, they got, they got run off the court in the second half. They played, they played really poorly. Yep, it's not great. Kansas always seems to have a an old school, traditional, big old center that I I watch the guy play. I guess Joel Embiid's awesome, but I just I see these guys. I'm like, I just don't know if this guy's a good NBA prospect. Like that that Dickinson guy was just like maybe he is good. I don't know. Maybe he's actually really good, but he was just dominating. Like he was so tall and just like doing hook shots and stuff. And oh, you couldn't stop it <laughs> doing hook shots and stuff. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, but I mean, that was to me, like, and I, I know a big issue with OU coming into this year maybe was like, oh, can they defend big guys in the paint? Well, I don't know if they can. I think that's and kind of the, the book is out on OU there is, is to kind of feed the post early in the game, get Jalen Moore in foul trouble, get Hughley into foul trouble, and then you're kind of forcing Godwin, who I think is a really good like glue guy and is a good offensive rebounder, but you don't want him going one-on-one against against Dickinson. And I mean, they got and like kind of one of the frustrating things about that game is that the one guy who kind of seemed like was was ready to meet the moment was Luke Northweather, who who hasn't really played in the last month at all. And everyone else just sort of it seemed like the moment was too big for him. In a and like I thought a spot which what's still like, oh, you caught Kansas in a really good spot, I thought. I know some people are just like, oh, it's not great catching them after after a bad loss on the road that they had. But I thought, actually, no. Like, I don't think this Kansas team is as good as they've been in the past. This is actually a great spot for them to kind of spiral because Kansas should have lost a TCU at home last week, too. They got bailed out by the officiating. Especially OU coming off that loss on the road. I mean, it would have been nice if they, I don't know, maybe if it wasn't back-to-back road games, but no, you're kind of just picking nits at that point. You got to take advantage. These are, these are young college kids. Like, 
travel. It's it's not that big of a deal. Uh, I thought JV McCollum met the moment. I mean, I, I would have liked him to shoot the three ball better, but he's good, man. I only five of nine from the field. Maybe have him shoot the ball more. <laughs> Moving forward, he's a good player. So I, I still think this is a um, I, this this is a tournament team. I still think, and they're going to have so many opportunities for good wins coming up here. And uh, hey, I, I I still think the Big Twelve is the best conference in in college basketball. It's nowhere near as as good as it's been in the past. It's it's just not. All right. Well, let's see. I kind of like this recording on Sunday mornings. So maybe maybe this could be a, a theme moving forward, depending on if we have even stuff to talk about. So I'd say maybe in the the time being to kind of plan on that. Does that sound okay to you? I mean, I don't have anything going on Sunday mornings. I don't think so. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm kind of. Um yeah, I'm not not sure that we need a big old huge break like we did the last couple off seasons. It's kind of uh, it is nice to kind of get on here and talk shop a little bit. So, um, gosh, it's gonna be it's and it's you know what doing it is just gonna make the off season go by f- quicker too. True, and I can't guarantee that every episode is gonna be an hour forty five like they've been kind of been. But you know, I I say that, and we always end up going way longer than we ever expect to, anyways. So we'll see. News will keep trickling out. And uh, we'll talk about it here on West of Everest. So until next time, for Grant, I am Lee. This is West of Everest. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to the show. And if you want to help us spread the word, please leave us a five-star review. And also, tell all of your friends who are OU fans about West of Everest. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.